an uh, um, aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect monuments of an aging intellect. <laughs> the uh, events committee for Penn, I want to uh, welcome you in the name of uh, poets, playwrights, essayists, and novelists uh, who make up the uh, body of Penn. Uh, this evening's uh, event was prompted I guess by two considerations. Uh, one, simply that uh, Penn hasn't done enough, it seems to me and others of us, other poets here, uh, for poetry <laughs> and for poets. Uh, and, the, and, and secondly, because uh, it seems to many of us that uh, avant-garde work, experimental poetry, has been under attack in this recent turn towards formalism in American poetry. It seems odd to me that a poetry that begins with such eccentric voices as Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman always at different periods seems to gravitate or slide uh, towards the voice of a high-toned old Christian lady. And in our day in particular, there seems to be uh, <laughs> there seems to be uh, among the young uh, poets, a return to formal verse, uh, so much so that um, some of us here uh, recently contributed to an issue of Poetry East on poetics, which was really to be, which was a kind of defensive free verse, as if that needed defending in our day. Uh, and I guess it does. So we have three critics, two poets who are also critics uh, with us this evening to talk about American avant-garde poetry and to bring us some news of it. The three poets are very, the three critics are very dissimilar, uh, I think, but I find in all, in their work, in each of their work, um, a kind of writing that reminds me of Oppen's phrase, that truthfulness which illumines speech. They write a kind of criticism that, if you're a writer or a poet, makes you proud to be a writer and a poet. And it's a kind of criticism that makes you want to write. It's not true of a lot of criticism that one reads. Uh, Charles Bernstein in his book, Content Stream, Susan Howe in her book, My Emily Dickinson, 
And you can air certainly in his book, A Homemade World. It's give me that feeling. I'll introduce the three, I'll make this brief. I've taken up too much time as it is. I'll introduce the three participants now and they'll each speak for about 20 minutes or so and if there's time left, we'll have a discussion. And we'll, they'll simply speak in alphabetical order. Charles Bernstein is the author of several books of poetry, among them Resistance, Eyelets, Irritations, Controlling Interests, and his recently published large book of essays, Content Stream, Essays 1975-1984, published by Sun and Moon Press. Susan Howe is the author of seven books of poems, most, re most recently Pythagorean Silence and Defenestration of Prague. And I've said she's the author of a critical study of the poetry of Emily Dickinson called My Emily Dickinson. And she's written art criticism, art criticism for Art in America magazine and the Archives of, Amer of American Art Journal. Hugh Kenner has written, among his many books, most recently, The Mechanic Muse, uh, A Colder Eye, a book about the Irish writers, the very famous book, The Pound Era, uh, A Homemade World, which is one of my favorite books, and also a lovely little book about Joyce called Joyce's Voices. And he's, uh, he's always been dear to me as a critic because he's the, I guess, the senior critic in America who's made a case for the objectivists, for Oppen and Zukovsky and Reznikov in this country. Uh, but we'll start with Charles Bernstein. Charles. Uh, in, in such a brief period of time, uh, I'm going to just try to touch on some kinds of topics in respect to the topic of this evening that interest me rather than uh, to pursue them at any length, just to get a sense of some of the ways in which um, I'm thinking about uh, new writing uh, in poetry that's being done. I, I think one of the reasons that uh, I might have been selected to speak at this event is because I edited with Bruce Andrews a magazine called Language. Um, and in that magazine, we tried to bring together discussions on a range of poetry and very different kinds of poetry that nonetheless didn't take for granted certain assumed and dominant forms that we saw around us and that took as, as an active issue the kinds of syntax and vocabulary and subject matter uh, that poetry was written in. And uh, language specifically was interested in extending uh, the kinds of discussions of poetics uh, beyond, the, beyond the borders of, of the conventional discursive styles that were available. 
uh, and where the essays in language were as much uh, involved with writing as the poetry that they were about. And so the distinction, in a sense, between the essay and the poem, while not obliterated, at least uh, changed. And there was more of a dynamic relationship uh, with that. And I want to talk more about that in a second. And perhaps uh, Bruce Andrews, who's in the audience, might speak further about that later, because I think it would be you know, valuable to have this discussion at the end, if we could, because any one person can only give a small sense of, of the range of what's going on now in three, perhaps uh, not that much more. Still, the, we're at the Pan-American Center, and the evening was titled American Avant-Garde Poetry. And I want to question the validity of the term American poetry insofar as I've been thinking about it, and extending some remarks also to Jackson McClough, who is present tonight, uh, and I made uh, in a conference in Auckland, New Zealand, interestingly, and I think from that vantage it's interesting to think about an American Studies Association conference. Um, McClough as well questioned the meaning and validity of the term American poetry. Does America include Canada and Mexico, Central and South America? Are the languages and societies of Native Americans a focus? People in this audience, no doubt, will be particularly conscious of the specific needs a century ago that gave rise to the invention of American literature as an academic category within a university system that had only recently countenanced English, that is to say British literature, as a suitable appendix to the study of classics, that is primarily Greek and Roman works. At that time, there was a clear necessity for breaking away from the perceived limitations of island English literature, that is to say the island of England, in order to build an audience for, and at the same time give a measure of respectability and legitimation to certain New England and Middle Atlantic English language texts. American in this context was a strategic rather than an essential category. As a result, the multi-ethnic and polylinguistic reality of the U.S. was irrelevant to early formulations of American literature. By 1925, Williams, in, in the American grain, had given a new breath to the concept of America. Yet his related insistence on American speech suggested a false essence to a concept useful only as a negation, not English verse diction. Similar problems can be located in Olson's mythopoetic American place, not to mention Frost's homespun Americana. That is, as a negative category, defined in terms of what it was not, American literature was a useful hypothesis. In contrast, for the present, the idea of American literature understood as a positive, expressive totalization needs to be dismantled. The problem here is twofold. The totalization of America and the globally dominant position of the U.S. Firstly, since the U.S. is the dominant English language as well as Western nation in the political, economic, and cultural spheres, its monopolizing power needs to be cracked as surely as England's grip on our language's literature needed to be loosened in the 19th century. The same logic that led to the invention of American as distinct from English literature 
now leads to the invention of non-American-centered English language poetry. Indeed, any unitary concept of America is a false totalizing. There is no one America. The U.S. is less a melting pot than a simultaneity of inconsolable coexistences. From the all-too-audible spokespeople of the state to the ghostly voices of the almost lost languages of the sovereign nations of the Arapaho, Mohawk, Shoshone, Sioux, Pueblo, Navajo, Crow, Cree, Kickapoo, Blackfoot, Cheyenne, Zuni. Though in truth there are no sovereigns, only sojourners. For writing or reading to assume and consequently express or project a national identity is as problematic as for writing to assume a self or group identity. However, in jettisoning such presumptions, some sense of what such entities might be may be revealed. That is, the attempt to represent an already constituted idea of identity precludes the possibility of encountering newly emerging identity formations. In this sense, the writing does not escape from its socio-historical situation, but rather contributes to an interrogation and reformulation of the description of that socio-historical situation, foregrounding heterogeneous and anomalous elements rather than homogenizing ones. And then I go on to point out that, that for myself as a writer, uh, I feel affinities to a much greater extent with poets working in England or in Canada or in New Zealand or in Australia in English than I do with most poets here in the United States. And I think other poets would as well find those kinds of trans-English affinities. The national focus of American poetry tends to pointlessly encamp poets who would do better to share work and readership. Similarly, it tends to parochialize current criticism of poetry by ar arbitrarily limiting horizons. The invention of English language poetry involves the replacement of the essentialist category of English poetry, not with the equally essentialist category of American poetry, but with a non-essential field of possibilities. English languages set adrift from the sight-sound sensorium of the concrete experiences of the English people are at their hearts uprooted and transplanted, nomadic in origin, absolutely particular in practice. Invention in this context is not a matter of choice. It is as necessary as the ground we walk on. The dangers of dismantling whatever self or group identities we, have may, we may have already developed is that we risk becoming more atomized and so more passive. In this state of postmodern paranoia, so often celebrated uh, as the height of fashion and intelligence, all collective formations, real or imagined, are ironized or aestheticized, i.e. debunked as arbitrary, digitalized code. If social identities are to be problematized as part of the poetic process, this must be crucially in order to forge new collective identities that will enable a more resourceful resistance both to, the rigid, both to rig, rigidly territorializing clannishness and paralyzing, depoliticizing codicity. So those are the two things that sort of frighten me. Um, I, th I think this was a, this to read this was a, is a very specific uh, issue in respect to many kinds of things that I might raise, but I think 
because it represents something that I've been thinking about lately, and I think it does very much hook into what one might think of as a project of American avant-garde poetry, which was to establish something like American poetry, a project which I don't have a problem with, as I'm saying, if it's understood as strategic. And I would, in fact, say what I am saying is, in a sense, an extension of that kind of, of effort as it's been articulated uh, in Williams or, or Creeley or, or Zukofsky. And uh, a funny way of putting that uh, would be uh, the fact that someone like Bunting, who uh, writing in a Northumbrian dialect in English, is in this sense an American poet, or as I would say, an English language poet. American, if this term American is understood in this sense of breaking away from certain kinds of normative patterns within island English and opening up the field of what the English language is. But I think it's time for us to stop identifying that project, which runs through the kind of poetry that interests me, with the adjective American. Um, so it seems to me to briefly talk about the kinds of uh, polarizations, the kinds of contrasts that are presently active in the field of poetry that, say, uh, Bruce Andrews and I were looking at when we were editing language, I talk about a number of different, different kinds of pairs of terms, such as the expressive versus the lyric, although in the sense of the lyric there, I mean a lyric evacuated of, an, of a of a given assumed subject, but rather of a kind of uh, heightened musicality, a heightened um, acoustic element. That's often thought to be in contrast to a more concretely word-focused or opaque or word-materializing uh, practice, uh, which uh, in some ways seems to question the ability of language to express or to try to foreground the ideological dimensions of any such expression. And I contrast that word-focused, opaque, world-materializing kind of concern with a more philosophical or ideational investigation, uh, which, look, which hooks into a crisis in discursive writing that I think uh, I sort of alluded to when I was talking about editing language. That is to say, you might say that uh, Criticism and essays need to be, to echo the famous remark of Pounds, at least as well written as poems. And literary theory needs to be at least as alive as writing as, as poems do. And so a kind of renewed interest in the philosophical and epistemological, that is to say the investigation of uh, the relation of, of um, language to meaning and language to knowledge, also can kind of seep in and enter into the poetry as a primary pull. So these different kinds of, of issues, to concretize the word, to materialize the word, to make the dynamics of how the sound of the words and the structures of the words and the kinds of phrases uh, that we use, uh, uh, to make them uh, maximally heard, maximally materialized, is one dynamic a more, not traditional, but a, a, a re-envisioned kind of expressiveness is yet another thing that comes out of that project. And at the same time, both of those things together can work toward uh, seeing writing as, in a sense, a philosophical medium, a medium that can uh, 
try to deal with the conceptual and ideological and political questions uh, that face us, not in any sense in an abstract way, but in the most concrete and necessary possible way. And uh, that range of, uh, of investigation, of work, and of realization spans then many, many different practitioners doing many, many different kinds of things. The term avant-garde suggests, you know, in an unpleasant way, as people always say, this uh, sort of uh, paramilitary uh, uh, image of being ahead or uh, some kind of advanced art. And I would say that in many senses that concept of advanced uh, does have the problem of being elitist uh, as a formulation of the work. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize the value of work which doesn't assume how writing is to be written, but takes it as its project to find new ways to write. And I think that at this time, uh, there is uh, an incredible uh, uh, richness uh, in terms of writing in English that is going about doing that in a number of different ways. And I'm, I'm looking out in the audience and I'm thinking, especially in this room, there are a number of writers who I would consider could would be able to speak as well as I through their practice and so on. Uh, and I hope that they will speak in addition to Susan Howe and Hugh Kenner and that the diversity and multiplicity is so great, nonetheless, the concept of avant-garde or of other terms that are used to describe new and unfamiliar forms of writing tends always to make those kinds of things seem like one thing, like there's avant-garde writing, or there's new writing, or there's language poetry, or there's concrete poetry, or any of the various forms of characterization, as opposed to this multiplicitous center of which there's a variety of different individuals. But I would reverse that radically. From my point of view, true individuality in writing at this time is almost contained exclusively within the realm of these margins of activity because the uh, assumptions behind most kinds of conventional writing are so all-powering that the writer really is able to do very little with them. And where the real diversity, in that sense, individuality, but again, an individuality that takes into consideration uh, the limits of, uh, of what the, uh, the, the relation of the individual to the social, and the social is defining, and the language is defining the individual, and the language and the social speaking through the individual as much as the other way around. But even given that, I would say that the maximum point of diversity and individuality now possible within writing is occurring within the more radical fringes of English language writing. So with that in mind, I thought I'd continue uh, something that I, I, I read on Sunday. It's Sunday night at St. Mark's Poetry Project, there was a reading in honor of an anthology called In the American Tree. And that anthology brought together about 40 different writers, um, uh, some of whom, are, again, are in the room tonight. Uh, and what I did for that was to use a kind of a procedure that goes back within the tradition of North American uh, writing uh, of appropriation and transformation and translation. I simply went through the book and took a number of lines and reworked them and left some as they were and created my own uh, poem based on that. And I think this work, which I'll, I'll, I'll finish with, which is called uh, Reading the Tree, is the second part of that work. Um, 
will, I th hopefully, suggest all of the different kinds of dynamics that I'm talking about that interest me. That is to say, I think that there's a lot of poetics, there's a lot of stuff that's speaking about what I think about poetry and about politics, but also I think the key thing for many people here probably haven't heard the kind of work I'm talking about, at least to my knowledge, uh, would be to actually hear some of this in motion rather than uh, you know, what I might say extemporaneously as speaking, which is not my commitment as a writer. My commitment as a writer is to what I write. I think occasions like this, it's in a sense better to speak extemporaneously, but I do want to at least put down some sound, as they say. The part plots a spindle, but the true scales waddle off the clock, at at which pops as someone nodules quartz, holy non-check slowdown, Bend nothing, and nothing will bend you. Jam the gorge, astride the loom, black away to tending send. A single everything points the mud of bulk, tonal belief, perfect compassion, and graciously pissed. Oh, Hannah, acting like a typical male chauvinist pigsty. Nothing comes quickly, too nervous, bulb which whose you thought screen bottom, I like my repeated stupid, across don't complete sentience, sentence. That's all a silhouette for obedience. The oilcloth cuffs quip, maybe accuses the whole world of his darkness. You seem unable to understand that, pygmy white meat, drooping as texture, each embody dynamite blunt tests puffing lint wheels, syllabary to tea cakes. Okay, monotonous agitations thrown across spent bonbons. Well, 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 well. You have to enforce digestion. May I slip through the greased palms of sociology tonight without even knowing what it looks like? I'm always resistant while she sets as the shadow of my thoughts. Passion toys curiously, seem to recall holding what you expected to be left out, finalized occurrence, past eventual pronouncing. At home, it means light to them. Luck as forced movement, passionate bondage. Only by the moon's house, the lights frost arm jammed, meanings glance, coasts cool, cones emblems, jars, erupts immense drone, cumbered out of clock, load dickering, tune full, leveraged gline. This is the evening before I ask, my hands hardened to let water in, or substance, acceleration, a line of sight inflating to become extinct, Listen to reason. It's only a few hours away and plunges down. Great logs of the moon, the things that make up daily life, meteorites and meteoroids, air, food, housing, years, stars caught in space, my reefs, my trees having fallen. Then the reader crowds the page with the rush of ideas, a portable altar strapped to his back, waving fables and faces and maneuvering between points, holes and clouds, condensing into a stream of ink. The present moss tears backward, 
shading the grief of heaven's earthlessness and melting into empty air. Blind love for the future, I used to say, as if measure met my grave. Dreams wheel their pale course. We write in sand. But you've changed. Money, self-destruction, metabolism, large, major things, the real stuff. I remember you in certain immense situations, how the timing was wrong, or don't surge with me now, how what I could accept purples your words, flash images of fractional chance, crystal methodology, giddy visibility. When she smiles, another star is lit. When she laughs, she drops the balloon carrying swollen changes that rip in the whirl responsiveness makes, lining the pictures and deliriously swinging upward toward our hats. I used to be American, but now I just speak English. Conventicles sledging tumble delusions, danishes in the pool. As per permanent non-cling 100% banlon fodder, semi-distinguishable dent, nods out to liquidating dropsy, would like to shut him out of misbegotten congelation of debasements. I mean, I wanted to hear everything, not any way to pass judgment, as if one could remain or could stand aside from things we saw. Light long enough to recover, we gain a second beam. Mother tongue, father pastrami, then one evening, I twist myself around, keeping track of all my loose ends, which I hadn't expected because I'd always come out as component parts. So I cut back, can't see, at which point I'm facing perhaps the ablative absolute, humiliation of a class system to create final segment but now stands by itself in someone else's clothes as a way to set off just where I've wanted to be all along spectacularly encumbered, but composed, some might say extended, a surface you can't hide in front of, or out of fumbling exhalation, tense windows, sound a press, gap a spill. Browsing for ice, the fragrance of its labor staggers outside the house of rhymes, green bottles smoked as they're hitched, the fish in the pail, and the pail in my hand. Later we go to lunch, but now we talk shoes. I began all this in April 1972 at 3.55 a.m. Those were the intentions I wrote down. In this way, from the outside, I put everything in. On April 11th, I dreamt the history of all people in the world, good and evil. In June, I started it again and started it I started it again, and what started it was that I wrote this. Her pins prick my skin. A blinding wedge, maybe the shape of selection, seduction. You leave traces impossible to tear. I want to get out of here. Hide me. White verges, whirrings of remorse, seethe through the terminal. A kind of restored diligence, radial in its appetite, when the evening shuts in space or relaxes its axes in translucent thirst, ineluctably tainted by tendency, whose blousing anecdotes within which trenchant anarchies tour ardor 
penchant for flatulent latitudes backing into breath, the impact of the pipe like ice cream at the end of sequence at the end of a sequence of themes memorialized in a pinhole, blurry wheezes in the ricochet, crushing puffs of swelling fellowship. The Hudson lies. We get over who dies. Plethora jellies where the Persian Gulf empties into the roof. Say it, damn it. Then suddenly a sedan comes around, blasting, and I drop to the sidewalk behind a, behind a hydrant, squinting to get the plate number. Impotence itself should not discredit a man, but no one can. <laughs> impotence itself should not discredit a man, but no one considers supporting it. It is seven o'clock. I put on my coat and hat. I put on my coat and hat. Samples are recorded with a spinning arc, balancing incontinuity to find the proscenium. Yet politics excited them the avarice for neglected ideas under the locks in the hallway. No end in sight, nothing breaks, or spend all the time pending, sense of where, who's to what's, seen as sidereal blink, as in, sure could use a cold drink, a hot potato, an exact definition, remonstration. I'm afraid because I know a word without having seen it or read it. All experience is conditioned by expectation. And my feelings yearn for names known only by interval and tone. The points connect only once. I come to the door. I stop at the door. I push the door open. let the air clear for a minute, I suppose. So now listen to Susan Howe. Yes, yes. Yeah, I guess so. Well, uh, I'm going to, I prepared something to read um, about my own work because um, that's the only way I can feel I can discuss avant-garde American poetry. Um, and I guess I would have quite a, it sounds like I would have quite a fundamental disagreement with Charles, um, but maybe not about, because I, my central concern and, or problem as a poet for me is um, something to do with the fact that I consider myself an American poet, a North American poet, but uh, I'm very, I'm, I'm pulling myself, maybe it's because I'm half Irish, I don't know, but I find it a, a very great problem and, and a great, and also something very exciting and, and, that, and that, that whole issue hasn't yet even barely begun to be tapped in, in writing. This will take 20 minutes. For me, there was no silence before armies. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, 
on June 10, 1937, to an Irish mother and an American father. My mother had come to Boston on a short visit two years earlier. My father had never been to Europe. She is a wit, and he was a scholar. They met at a dinner party when her earring dropped into his soup. By 1937, the Nazi dictatorship was well established in Germany. All dissenting political parties had been liquidated, and concentration camps had already been set up to hold political prisoners. The Berlin-Rome axis was a year old. So was the Spanish Civil War. On April 25th, Franco's Luftwaffe pilots bombed the village of Guernica. That November, Hitler and the leaders of his armed forces made secret plans to invade Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Russia. In the summer of 1938, my mother and I were staying with my grandmother, uncle, aunt, great-aunts, cousins, and friends in Ireland, and I had just learned to walk when Czechoslovakia was dismembered by Hitler, Ribbentrop, Mussolini, Chamberlain, and Daladier during the conference and agreement at Munich. That October, we sailed home on a ship crowded with refugees fleeing various countries in Europe. When I was two, the German army invaded Poland and World War II began in the West. The fledgling Republic of Ireland distrusted England with good reason and remained neutral during the struggle. But there was the Battle of the Atlantic to be won, so we couldn't cross the ocean again until after 1945. That half of the family was temporarily cut off. In Buffalo, New York, where we lived at first, we seemed to be safe. We were there when my sister was born and the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Now there were armies in the West called East. American fathers marched off into the hot chronicle of global struggle, but mothers were left. Our law professor father, a man of pure principles, quickly included violence in his principles, put on a soldier suit, and disappeared with the others into the thick of the threat to the East called West. Buffalo, 12741. Late afternoon light, going to meet him in snow. He comes through the hall door. The research of scholars, lawyers, investigators, judges demands. She, with her arm around his neck, whispers. Herod had all the little children murdered. It is dark. The floor is ice. They stand on the edge of a hole, singing. In Rama, Rachel, weeping for her children, refuses to be comforted because they are not. 
Malice dominates the history of power and progress. Furious machines come swarming from paradise. History is the record of winners. Documents were written by the masters. But fright is formed by what we see, not by what they say. From 1939 until 1946, in news photographs day after day, I saw signs of culture exploding into murder. Shots of children being herded into trucks by hideous helmeted conquerors. Shots of children who were orphaned and lost. Shots of the emaciated bodies of Jews dumped into mass graves on top of more emaciated bodies. Nameless, numberless men, women, and children uprooted in a world almost demented. God had abandoned them to history's sovereign necessity. If to see is to have at a distance, I had so many dead innocents, distance was abolished. Substance broke loose from the domain of time and obedient intention. I became part of the ruin. In the blank skies over Europe, I was strife represented. Things overlap in space and are hidden. Those black and white picture shots, moving or fixed, were a subversive generation. The hawk with his long claws pulled down the stones. The dove with her rough bill brought me them home. Buffalo roam in herds up the broad streets, connected by boulevards and fences. Their eyes are ancient and a thousand years too old. Hear murder throng their muting. Old as time, in the center of a room, doubt is spun and measured. Throned wrath, I know your worth. A chain of parks encircles the city. Pain is nailed to the landscape in time. Bombs are seeds of science and the sun. 2,000 years ago, the dictator Creon said to Antigone, who was the daughter of Oedipus and Jocasta, go to the dead and love them. Life opens into conceptless perspectives. Language surrounds chaos. During World War II, my father's letters were a sign he was safe. A miniature photographic negative of his handwritten messages was reproduced by the Army and a microfilm copy forwarded to us. In the top left-hand corner, someone always stamped, passed 
by examiner. This is my historical consciousness. I have no choice in it. In my poetry, time and again, questions of assigning the cause of oppression dictate the sound of what is thought. There are not leaves enough to crown, to cover, to crown, to cover. Language, the mother of reason and revelation, wrote Walter Benjamin during World War I in an essay he titled On Language as Such and on the Language of Men. He was quoting the 18th century irrationalist philosopher Johann George Hamann, often referred to as the Magus of the North. For Hamann, every system as such was an obstacle to truth. He acknowledged no separation of body and soul, of inner meaning and outward appearance. Hamann's published works, including occasional pieces and two books, Free a reader's imagination by substituting images and symbols for logical abstractions. Often the disconnected revelations, personal and regional materials, and allusions to older texts he loved and lived in are difficult to follow. Even so, he liked to erase the more obvious connections. When every suggestion is dimension, possibility may open. In On Language and Such and On the Language of Men, Benjamin quoted the author of Crusades of a Philologist one more time. The origin of language was as natural, as close, and as easy as a child's game. A child is being killed. All letters form her name. She is the child of no name. She will never be mended. Before I could talk, I rocked in the reverberation of her calling. To be trapped in uneasy history. To be called across endless plunder of wrecked or wasted human endeavor. All is the fear, and nothing is the love. And what will you do now? How will you live? On lightning's jointed road, morning's amber road. Over force of phrases, force without phrases, baroque caprice, Deaf omen spheres. Economy of value. Poetry may be the deepest form of historical writing. After the obliteration of languages, boundaries, and social formations, a redemptive intervention into chaos of commodification. Poetry establishes an enunciative clearing outside intention while obeying intuitions agonistic 
necessity. Deflagration of manifest destiny. No message to see or finally to say. On lightning's jointed road, morning's amber road, use value is a blasphemy. Shh. Dispel. Iris. Shh. Snow. Sward. Wide. Forest. One. Off. Boundary. Manic. Off. Land. Shh. Wit. Thing. Target. Cadence. Mark. On. Oath. About. Both. Or. Don't. Indication. Americ. Woof, subdue, toward, foliage, free, shh. I am pulling representation from the irrational dimension all knowledge must touch. Here is a dangerous place where there is no choice. On the incomparable road, every letter, each word, the space around a word, every mark, silence, or sound volatizes an inner law of form, moves on a rigorous line. Ruins, beacons, figments, litter, echolalic splinters, breath, Syllables, counterpoint, and rhythm are emblazoned ciphers of inspiration. But it takes a name to make the invisible visible, the implacable debasement of culture. Interpretation will trample on a force field of passionate enunciation. In the moors of this culture of everything, we take refuge from the text, and the text is refuge. Ages for long being our soul, fledgling, I will go over. Narrative and Eschatology. June 20, 1675, through April 12, 1678, are the dates of King Philip's War in New England. The king in this case was Metacom, chief sachem of the Wampanoags. The English christened him Philip. Increase Mather called him Leviathan. This was the second war of extermination waged by colonists against certain tribes in Massachusetts and Connecticut. During the three-year conflict over 300 years ago, 
Numberless Indians were killed or sold into slavery. 500 settlers died or were captured, and between 10 and 20 recently settled towns were destroyed or abandoned. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. Of 37 persons who were in this one house, none escaped either present death or a bitter captivity, save only one who might say as he, Job 1.15, and I only am escaped alone to tell the news. Mary Rowlandson's narrative of her captivity and restoration was published in Boston in 1682 after her minister husband's death. Her little book tells of prefigured force and the dooms of life. For a time, its author was elated, tribeless, lost. Her narrative has been called the initiator of a genre within the American culture, the primary model on which all other subsequent captivities are diminished copies or types. I call her narrative a poem. Who might say as he? Her mythopoeic interpenetration and assimilation of the ideological declarations of our founding fathers is a microcosm of imperialist colonial history and a prophecy of predestined catastrophe. Her song of war tarnishes John Winthrop's version of the Commonwealth as a figural refuge set apart for the cheerfulness and primitive purity of these forerunners of Christ's army. Oh, the wonderful power of God that mine eyes have seen, affording matter enough for my thoughts to run in, that when others are sleeping, mine eyes are weeping. I have seen the extreme vanity of this world. In 1675, when her Narragansett and Nipmunk captors asked her to name the price for her own ransom, she did. 20 pounds in goods, mostly guns. As Solomon says, she later wrote, money answers all things. Mrs. Rowlandson's presentation of truth severed from truth is a rude effraction into a familiar hierarchical discourse of purpose and possession. The sovereignty and goodness of God, together with the faithfulness of his promises displayed, composed in a bloody fragment of the world, is a relentless origin. Like lightning on a landscape, it instills expanse, not peace. Solitude articulates solitude. 1851, from Melville's epilogue to Moby Dick. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee, Job. The unharming sharks 
they glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths. The savage seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks. On the second day, a sail drew near, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. World, selves, son. In Boston, on Friday 20th, July 1711, Cotton Mather wrote in his diary, thoughts for a day of rain. One, the gospel of the rainbow in the meditations of piety on the appearance of the bright clouds with the bow of God upon them. Two, the Savior with his rainbow and the covenant which God will remember to his people in the most cloudy times that are passing over them. North Americans have tended to confuse human fate with their own salvation. In this, I am North American. We are coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more, sang the Union troops at Gettysburg. Advent. Before he turned into a soldier, my father Mark used to take me to the Buffalo Zoo on Sunday afternoons. On December 7, 1941, in the small enclosure that simulated a polar habitat, three white bears, normally gray and lethargic, were suddenly fresh, archangelic, and terrific. They charged from edge to edge of the non-cage encircling them. They snorted and splashed each other in the shallow, murky water representing ocean. A crowd of watchers, including us, gathered by the barrier moat, keeping us safe. Cooped in each separate self, we were staring at mystery no language can cross. I was frightened and held on tightly to my father's hand. In his eyes, delight was the sight I saw. Those bears know something tremendous is happening somewhere else in the world, he said. That was the day the Japanese army bombed Pearl Harbor. Children shall come again to their own border. Tiny words of substance cross the darkness. Who are they? Others between the trees, falling into lines of human habitation. Tread softly, my misgiving heart, to chart all verisimilitude, throw my body at the mark. Parents among savages, their house was garlanded with dead theologies, fierceness of the young. 
then to move forward into unknown, crumbling compulsion of syllables, glass face caressing the athwart night. I write to break out into perfect primeval consent. I wish I could tenderly lift from the dark side of history voices that are anonymous, slighted, inarticulate. I hope this isn't beginning to sound like an old-fashioned prayer meeting. Um, if there's any danger of that, then I will pass as a theologian or a historian. <coughs> I, think it's, um, I think it's noticeable how long and how consistently there has always been a certain air of research about American poetry. As if the poet were trying to find out something about the language, rather than, rather than make a statement or play a tune or attend to the education of the reader. What goes on, in, what goes on inside this language? Well, uh, uh, Americans, I think, are remarkably, are remarkably detached from language in a, way that, um, in a way that no Englishman, no Frenchman, no German can conceivably be. It may be an aspect of the melting pot situation. There have been so many languages assimilated on this continent. It may simply be the detachment from English that naturally occurred when a large number of people left England. <coughs> but we do, I do think we feel external to the language in very interesting ways. This has um, consequences that people find themselves deploring. For example, um, I think this is the only country in the world where it is possible to copyright a word. Um, <coughs> William, Safire in, William Safire had a wonderful item in his New York Times Magazine column about three years ago. A, um, a cosmetics manufacturer was systematically misspelling a word in the advertisements. Misspelling it by one letter. It was a plausible misspelling, but if you looked it up in the dictionary, it was wrong. And Safar began to wonder if this was a continuous slip of the pen. And he called them up and he discovered, no, we own that word. Now talk about detachment and exteriority. We own that word. I've, I've, had, uh, I've had letters from me, uh, from the Xerox company pointing out that I used Xerox with a lowercase x in a magazine. 
and this letter comes from a legal department. On the other hand, in the um, English department at Johns Hopkins, we have a Canon copier, and the secretary has put a little notice on it saying, please close the lid while Xeroxing. <laughs> and I, I, always, I, I like to watch the face of the Canon repairman when he comes about every six weeks. Uh, he, l he looks at it and um, he thinks he'd better not say anything. <coughs> well, I'm, I'm, sim I'm simply illustrating this theme of exteriority. It leads to... Um, it leads to language being studied in this country in ways that don't normally happen. Uh, it leads to things like Samuel Fairbanks Morse, who was both a painter and the inventor of the electric telegraph, uh, suddenly realizing that if you were going to send dots and dashes to represent, um, to spell out English words, it would be a good idea if the letters you had to send most frequently had the shortest code. And then it occurred to him that nobody, nobody, literally nobody knew what are, the what are the most frequent letters. Well, we knew that Q and X are not very common. But beyond that, no one was sure. And more suddenly realized, I know who knows, every job printer knows how much type to buy. So you go off to a job printer and um, look up the type case. Well, the, the little, uh, the little uh, box with the letter E is full. The little box with the letter T is just about as full, and so on. And you get E-T-A-O-I-N-S-H-R-D-L-U in that order. Have you written that down? <laughs> Those are the 12 most frequent letters in English. And so Morse represented E by one dot, T by one dash, A by dot dash, N by dash dot, and so on. And when you get out to the ones that are very little used, you can have as many as four symbols for them. But that was, um, that was a, an early piece of statistical linguistic research. And that kind of curiosity about what people do when they write, what people do when they talk, language considered as human behavior, which in some ways minimizes effort, has been an American concern 150 years at least. <coughs> um, a man named Melville Dewey devoted years to going through Buffalo newspapers. That was when there were four Buffalo newspapers, and he took all four of them. And he simply went through every issue counting the words and counting the occurrences of the words and keeping notes, year after year after year. <coughs> Melville Dewey, by the way, was a wonderful crank. He spelled his first name M-E-L-V-I-L because he said he, could ca he had calculated that $4 million a year was spent in the city of Washington alone printing unnecessary letters. And if you took the L-E off Melville, you were saving somebody money. Well, he did that. <coughs> well, he, his, uh, his frequency studies are, are, pub are, published in, are published in a book which is still in print.
from which you can learn that the, when people start writing English, the word they use most of the time is T-H-E, the. But it, le it leads to other interesting things. Uh, the one I discovered myself, I call it the 40-40 law. And that is that if you get any extensive amount of writing in the English language, I don't know about other languages, but I know about English, 40% of that text is just the 40 communist words over and over again. That is, 40 different words are 40% of Shakespeare. 40 different words are 40% of Shakespeare. Everything that makes him Shakespeare depends on the others. <coughs> this, um, this is the sort of thing you can find out from, uh, from Dewey and from concordances. It was a, um, it was a subject that led um, a wonderful, cranky man named George Kingsley Zipf of Harvard to a long series of investigations published <coughs> published in the 1940s in a book called Human Behavior and the Principle of Least Effort. Human Behavior and the Principle of Least Effort. He thought there was some connection. Um, one, of the th one of the things he discovered, looking over Philadelphia marriage statistics, and uh, all the marriage licenses granted in Philadelphia in the year 1930, he happened to be able to get the figures. You could draw a graph showing the probability that you would marry the girl next door. And it turned out that the further apart people lived, the less likely they were to get married. It, just, it was an absolutely straight line graph from the bottom corner of the paper to the top corner. And it was scaled in blocks and in number of marriage licenses. That's a, a good example of human behavior and the principle of least effort. I mean, why, why, why go around the world? But what I'm, what I'm leading to, what I'm leading to is Zipf's, um, Zipf's cardinal discoveries all had to do with language, because he very sensibly regarded language first of all as human behavior, and second as a kind of, as as a set of tools which we use so frequently that we try to um, improve their access. The ones we want to use most of the time, we try to keep handy. The first thing he noticed was a very simple one. The commonest words are always short. The, and, of, but, and so on. The big words are always uncommon. What's the same principle by which you keep a paring knife on the, right on the kitchen counter and you keep the nutmeg grater in a drawer? Because you don't want the nutmeg grater very often and you're willing to take some trouble to go and get it when you do want it. But you want the paring knife right there. <coughs> the short word principle is exactly the same. <coughs> The next thing, the next thing that Zipf discovered, this is really, uh, th this is really extraordinary. You get a big enough book, and uh, the book that he used much of the time was Joyce's Ulysses, simply because the statistics happened to be available. 
Some people at Wisconsin have, not, have done a word index with all the numbers at the back. And Zipfer kept looking at those numbers and seeing patterns. He saw, for example, that the commonest word in the book was, of course, THC, the. Uh, how many times? About 16,000. Okay. Look at the other end of the table. How many words are just used once? 16,000. Does, does that strike you as odd? What is the second commonest word? And? How many times is and used? About 8,000. How many words are used twice? You know the answer, don't you? This is absolutely symmetrical. Uh, it's clear that there is, there is no, there is no power, there is no power governing those numbers. It was certainly not anything that James Joyce was aware of. What is going on there is something about human behavior with language which we don't understand well at all. The fact that you can get those extraordinary numerical symmetries tells you that people are doing something with their, their vocabulary, their grammar, and their syntax. Every time they take pen in hand, every time they open their mouths, in such a way that the big words balance the little ones, the frequent ones balance the infrequent ones. Something, something is leveling off. <coughs> I'm, leading, I'm leading you through the, uh, this kind of material, partly, um, <coughs> partly, partly to suggest that language is a language is a legitimate field of inquiry for the poet, simply because it is human behavior. One trouble with going to school is you get the idea that language is just there and it's something you come and, um, and learn or you look up in a book or you um, get the teacher to straighten you out about. But it, it's human behavior. And what people are doing with words continually is telling you a great deal about people. <coughs> I happen to have a, I happen to have a, a rather un, un little known poem here by Charles Bernstein. I'm going to read the title. <coughs> the title is Word Frequencies of Spoken American English in Descending Rudder. And the poem lives up to that exactly. It's, um, <coughs> it's in stanzas of three lines. Each line has three words. I'm not going to read it. It's, very, it's quite long. But I'm going, to, I'm going to sample it. And before I sample it, let me turn to the note at the end. The note at the end tells you that this was compiled from Road Frequencies in Spoken American English by Hard Big Doll, 1979, etc. Now, what is, what is Hard Big Doll doing? Hard Big Doll has transcripts of 225 psychoanalytic sessions. Speakers averaging in age in the late 20s. 
29 generally middle-class speakers, 21 of them men. Total vocabulary, 17,871 different words. Just a little bit bigger than the total vocabulary of Ulysses. <coughs> well, look, this is spoken language. Moreover, this is people speaking about themselves, okay? So what is, what is the first word in the poem? I. I remember how surprised I was when I saw that because it was so fixed in my mind that the, fir that the first, the most frequent word in English has to be the. And it does in the written language. I and the to that you. That's interesting. You comes up rather quickly. It. Hmm. It. Ob, ah, here comes a good one. No, was, uh, you ate. Mm. <coughs> I, I admire Hartwig Dahl for, for recognizing that in spoken English, uh, is a word. It is the twelfth most frequent word on those tapes, apparently. <laughs> it, it, has no, it has no equivalent in the written language, has it? Because when we write, we edit out the oh. The spoken language, you hear almost nothing else. But I, I'm, I'm glad to have a figure. It's number, it's number 12. In a situation where number one is I. Well, uh, I, to nobody's surprise, as the Bernstein poem goes on, into the higher and, into the higher, and higher um, frequencies, or rather the lower and lower frequencies, the words get longer and longer, and longer. Um, some rather clinical words turn up, which have to do with the psychoanalytic context. <coughs> you got things like um, hiding, sucking, strongly, ice, significance, stronger, downstairs, remark, sequence. This is Gothic. <coughs> Personality, roommate, hat. <coughs> the next two are Catholic and cat. <coughs> Catholic, cat. You got a verb for that, don't you? It's hassles. Catholic, cat, hassles. Confident opportunity build. This is, this is making a crazy kind of sense, you know. I'll not destroy it any further because I can't, I, I can't read it properly. But I, I, simply, I simply want you to know that uh, there's some cohesion to this evening. The poet from whom we, the poet from whom we learnt first has been interested, it turns out, in exactly the kind of thing that's been interesting me for the last couple of years. Uh, namely, the, namely the, numbers, the numbers that go with words and words as um, behavior. I think I've just time. I think I've just time for one more thing. About um, three years ago, a colleague of mine and I—he's in the computer science department. I'm in the English department. Johns Hopkins <coughs> uh, wrote, a, wrote, a wrote a computer program, which was later published in Byte magazine. It, you know, Byte—it's—it's. Uh, it's, I think it's the heaviest magazine in America. 
Um, well, each, each issue is about three quarters of an inch thick. And that was the single most popular, the single most popular program that Byte had published in five years. It generated enormous amounts of correspondence. Uh, I tell you that not because uh, Joe and I were so smart, but because the subject obviously is interesting. What the program does is take, um, it takes a, a written text of any length, you have to type it in of course, and it proceeds to generate what we call a travesty of that text. And all that you can say about the travesty is that any combination of successive letters and spaces in the travesty also occurs in the original at about the same frequency. That's the only connection. <coughs> the original idea came from a man at the Bell Telephone Labs, a legendary genius named Claude Shannon. Uh, Shannon used to get around the, um, I'm told, around the corridors of the Bell Labs on his unicycle. Um, <coughs> he was idiosyncratic in other respects. And he was, he was investigating, I've Totally, totally in connection with um, uh, maximum efficiency of coding for telegraphic um, uh, transmission, he was investigating the regularity with what's what he called diagrams and trigrams and foregrams. A trigram is a set of three letters, one after the other. Um, take the word trigram itself, T-R-I is a trigram. R-I-G is a trigram. See, that's the second, third, and fourth letters. <coughs> I-G-R is a trigram, and so on. He was interested in how common those things were. He did an incredible amount of work by hand, just plowing around in books before the computer. Well, of course, what's your, what, this, um, what this travesty program does is simply reproduce the diagram, trigram, etc., frequencies of the original, and that's all it does. It does not guarantee any sense. <coughs> I, ha I have to tell you one more thing, and then I'll come to my punchline. Uh, there, is a, there is a little number that you, you can keep increasing. If the number is, let's say, two, what will come out will be absolute gibberish, just monkeys on the typewriter. Move the number up to three, it's looking, well, you're getting f fragments of something. It looks occasionally as though it were trying to be English. Bring it up to four, you see what I mean? It's getting a little, a little better defined each time. Unfortunately, if you got that index number too high, you just it just regurgitates the input text and doesn't do anything useful, interesting at all. You find it by trial and error. All right, now I come, this is what I've been leading to. You know what the first thing is that you're aware of as we increase that index number, beginning, as I say, with absolute gibberish? The first thing you can tell is what language it is. That looks more like English than it looks like German. <laughs> And a little later, there's hardly a word there that's in the dictionary, but nevertheless, it's trying to be English. You see what I'm saying? 
how do I know it's English? But I do. This idea of word there, it's in the dictionary. Well, all right, we've identified the, the language. Let's move a little bit further. Do you know what the next thing is we discover? We discover who the author is. This is making no sense whatever, but it's got to be Henry James. This is making no sense whatever, but it's got to be William Faulkner. You cannot mistake them. And that effect can occur before there is anything even resembling a consecutive sentence anywhere. Now, what does, that, what does that tell you about the human personality? I don't know. I don't know what it tells me. <laughs> but look, it tells me something, by golly. Because the human personality is, is coming up through that sea of static. Absolutely unmistakable imprint. And it comes up linked with which language it is. This has First, you know it's English or Italian or whatever. Second, you know who wrote it. <coughs> I don't know what this means either, but one, of, one, uh, I got, uh, one fan letter I got on that was from Ralph Ellison. He was hoping, uh, he was hoping for a copy because he wanted, to try some, um, he wanted to try some black English on it. I never heard from him again which may just mean that he got something more important to do. Okay, that's gone on too long. Thank you. I hope to find out I hope to find out something plausible. See what is what is going on here is the um, on the one hand the statistics of language are are rigidly controlling what is going on. And that is they are what are guaranteeing that we can recognize that it's Latin or English or French or whatever. But there's something about the human identity that seems to be patterned in ways very similar to the statistics of language. As if, uh, as if writers have their unique, their unique preferences for trigram frequencies without having any awareness of that there are such things.
I think of something, I'll tell you. I think that military metaphor is getting a bit tired, don't you? <laughs> we, we, took it over, we took it over somehow from European politics in the 19th century. There's the, the avant-garde, These are the, that's the scouting party that's out hiding behind the bushes, um, meaning the middle class is no good. And the big, the big army will follow along later when it's safe. Uh, what, what would you agree, Charles, at that I, I've that? always had a problem with, well, see, my problem is that I have a problem, you know, the more I think about a term and a characterization, the more problem I'm going to end up having with it. And I, I, I said in my brief, comment on the term avant-garde, not a term I feel totally comfortable with, but I wanted to emphasize in this context, and in that sense I think in a different situation than you, that I am involved with and feel very excited about a, many writers and poets who are doing things which are at the very radical extreme of what seems to be conventional language use and literary writing in the United States, let's say. And so in that sense, I think it's important, it, while I agree with that, the, the problem with that term and also with the kind of progressivist idea about it, um, well, there's always and the idea of the God. new, because the idea of the new might tend to think that it's stylistic fixation itself, that the fixation on doing some new technical innovation with style is in and of itself a value. And I would say that that's not enough, but I would also say that with the idea that not dealing with uh, innovation in a style is simply not to be conscious of the language around you and the possibility of writing. So it seems to me it's almost not enough uh, to be technically innovative, but it may be a prerequisite in that sense to be involved, to get in touch with the material. So much when you spoke, uh, and I'm looking out in the audience and seeing Jackson the Clover, I thought a lot of the kinds of, all the kinds of things you had talked about in respect to the relation to the materials of the work, uh, had a lot to do with what McClough had been doing over the years and uh, certainly a great interest and, uh, and uh, uh, in very inf informative in the, in the deepest sense of that word to me, uh, where McClough would take a variety of different kinds of texts and determine different kinds of procedures and architectures to generate the text. The particular work that you mentioned of mine is probably one of the ones that's most influenced by the kind of procedures that McClough had been involved with. And I do think in that sense that the issue of the distance from the language that you spoke of is really very close to what I was trying to say about the use of the word American. I think a lot of the what, what people mean when they talk about American in the sense that Kenner is talking about the distance from the language is something that is much more pervasive now to English speakers because so many people come into English without it being their first language. A hundred years ago, in this region of the country, in the Midwest, over half of the population of the, of the region was either non-English speakers or children of non-English speakers. It's also interesting that, that Peter Quarterman has pointed out to me that, that Gertrude Stein, Louis Zukofsky, and Williams were both 
essentially second language speakers of English, and they'd be people very informative to me in terms of their ability to deal with English both intimately but also at some distance, at some plastic <coughs> distance. So it seems to me that the, this is a positive development, not that we've lost a concrete relation to the language, but rather that rather than English colonizing or taking over the consciousness of the people who moved here, that the immigrants, the non-English speakers, have colonized English. And so these different kinds of syntaxes, different kinds of vocabularies, whether it be Irish vocabulary from Joyce or, or uh, black English or really n numerous ones have sort of percolated up and that that has uh, made the language particularly rich and interesting rather than abstract, although people tend to think of it that way, it actually gives us a chance to re-embody it. But it also is a very crucial part of the kind of investigation, I think, which has been at the a very central part, certainly, of the writers that I read, both earlier in the century and now. And I think that also would incorporate what Howe was doing in that sense of research into these kinds of terms, the kinds of historical influences and the way that they in her mind are constantly recreating in a, a, a kind of, uh, in a writing that, um, that balances different kinds of sounds and so on. So any kind of comment that you'd make in terms of your origins as a writer, in terms of uh, Mary Rowlandson is always situated within this incredible investigation and realization and music with the language that you're using. Well, I uh, think they're two different things. I and uh, my 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 person the equivalent, but they 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 serve uh, that uh, um, something of the space uh, that you can carve uh, with maybe. Also, there are kinds of dynamics. Not that writing is directly related to speech. Oh, uh, um, I think, I just can't figure, I think it's a great mystery uh, that, that obviously you, you write the thing silently, you write it for the page, but the whole thrilling mystery about poetry is, is, is where sound, sight, and meaning intersect, and uh, which is something I, it's just a mystery to me, and and sight is as as important, which has not for me, which has nothing to do in a sense with sound, but just that blank white piece of paper and the words on the page and the spaces between the words, are a whole thing that's equivalent to the sound, and and the meaning, and the, and that's the whole mystery in poetry that I don't think we can, or I can't explain or fathom. But I, I think certain kind of uh, so-called, I don't like to say avant-garde either, but I think uh, of this kind of poetry tends to be concerned in, in, in very, in ways with, with the sound and the sight more than uh, other poetry.
Yes, they're going to change your life. Absolutely. I think also that Susan's piece illuminated that in an interesting way also. So well, maybe we'll both speak to that. I, I think that's a particular interest of mine that isn't necessarily, you know, it's, and it's shared by many people. I think that the genre distinctions are very interesting to me and worth pursuing rather than breaking down, but at the same time, they're not fixed. There's the sub. In a certain way, even the term poetry, much less the term avant-garde poetry, is a term which, you know, I've had to come to, come to grips with uh, and had some hesitation with because, to me, what I'm doing is working with writing, and I think of myself as a writer. What I write is poetry. The way in which I deal with poetry, I think, in many ways, speaks to say, the same issues that people dealing with uh, writing philosophical uh, essays and political uh, uh, studies might might be dealing with, but I think uh, for me the fact that it's through writing and through that medium uh, always permeates the quality of the way in which I can and am able to express it, and so that's foregrounded. I think that there are different audiences for these different kinds <coughs> of genres. People read certain kinds of things and they expect certain kinds of um, structures to be set up in reading them. A philosophical paper certain kinds of magazine articles and editorial and so on, those seem to me uh, clearly artificial literary styles. They're all literary styles. They're all uh, 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 highly intentional and based on various kinds of rules. It seems to me interesting to deal with the multiplicity of genres and styles and try to make uh, myself as a writer and readers more aware of how those particular styles and the parameters and the methods and the assumptions of those those genres uh, affect what is being said within them. That in and of itself is not sufficiently interesting to me because when you finally get to it, the writing has in that sense that I suppose Fielding is invoking to transform that material, not only to point something out to you and say you see how this editorial style uh, limits the ability to say certain kinds of things and insists that certain kinds of proprieties, certain kinds of rationalities are included, other kinds of uh, proprieties and improprieties and other kinds of reasons are excluded. 
that begins to be a kind of prosodic element that you can rhyme with other kinds of prosodic elements, combine, transform, turn around to create uh, this kind of uh, writing which moves from one thing to the next and within and creates uh, a kind of music uh, which, uh, which both tells you those things but also transforms them and uh, yeah, sure, compelling, but I think sometimes you don't want to be compelling. Well, we try Uh, I, well, I think that that's true for some people. I would say I've, uh, I've done my share to deform the medium of the essay. And in fact, I've just finished a, like a 60-page essay which is in line format, and I would call a poem and an essay. So I'm, I'm quite interested in that, that process. I think some people feel that, the, that there are, and I also have felt at some points, that there are reasons to speak to make certain kinds of points in contexts that you're speaking more within the context of the occasion and therefore might speak more in terms of the form of an essay or of a, uh, of a talk and other times not. But uh, it seems to me that uh, I, I, I don't agree with that, that view, obviously, that the poems are more. I think that it's, a, it's problematic because if you're really interested in either one, you're going to be interested in both. And that distinction, at least evaluatively, is going to break down. But I think at a certain point, like I'm answering this question now, is going to be different than how I'd write it in a poem. Uh, there are different forms of address, no forms of address, no forms of communication, traditional, hackneyed, adventurous, uh, seemingly incomprehensible, have a value per se. They depend on the context and the use that they're put. So something isn't bad, and there are times when you need to avail yourselves of all the different forms of communication that are available. But I, I also thought maybe Susan would end just by answering that because she we has done. We have a, we can keep this going for a while longer. People want to ask questions, which is. But do you want to answer that about the essay? Um, well, um, I don't quite know. I, for me, um, just interestingly enough, sitting here, the way the questions are coming, none of them are coming to me. They're all coming to the two men. And as, as a woman, um, that seems to me, uh, as a woman trying to write essays uh, in, a, in, a, in a new, or in a new, trying to find a new way to write about writing, I approach it with tremendous hesitation and um, a sense of, um, you know, I just I doubt whether anyone wants to hear anyway what I have to say, and, and a sense of, of well, just a sense of hesitation and doubt that um, forms a certain uh, a way of, of, of speaking in these, in, in these essays. And um, I think it's a, quite an interesting thing to work with rather than feel badly about it now. I, I'm, I'm trying to work with it. And uh, for women trying to, to, to write, uh, to try to write essays on writing, um, uh, Gertrude Stein did it beautifully, but um, <coughs> there's, there aren't that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a rare thing, and um, I don't quite know.
express this, please. Yes. Well, maybe that's what I'm trying. I mean, thanks. Let's put there. Field, there's so many other no, people who want to speak, though. I think I we agree. should should just. It's just. It is. It's. It's just a sort of a. Very strong well, no, but I'm, all I'm saying is what I'm trying to talk about. You know, to that as as a to try to work with this thing, which is is a, a profound sense of doubt. Um, after first being intimidating, then becomes very exciting. Uh, whether one uses the term avant-garde or no, I sense uh, uh, on the part of, uh, in the air of the there's a will, a great determination to be original. Uh, and uh, it's not this will to be original, to make it new, to always be original, I sense. Well, it certainly reflects the predominant attitudes in this society about writing that one shouldn't be original and that if you are, it shouldn't be published. And that if you do something that seems strange, it's best to be left to small magazines. But if you do something that's decidedly and determinately and willfully unoriginal, that's something really interesting.
That's a head scratcher. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I mean, in a way, you're making a statement. I think people come to issues of what's a, a original for them or not original. It, it's funny because, uh, in a sense, Kenner's presentation uh, dealing with the with these found material. I mean, that that's what's interesting to me is, in fact, the obviously the original. I mean, obvious to me that the originals are not original. Concept of originality of origin is itself. Uh, uh, specious. That, that's part of what my argument is, in a sense, about American as being this single. Or, there are no single origins. There are multiple origins and multiple vectors for all of these questions. But nonetheless, there is a role for the individual to resist uh, uh, the kinds of roboticized, lobotomized kinds of discourse, kinds of thinking or non-thinking, which pervade the language use in our particular society. And I would say, whether it be great poetry sometimes, or great uh, rhetoric, or whether it simply be crucial and, uh, and vital, or whether it just be therapeutic, that those forms of writing and thinking that resist uh, and think about the ways in which language uh, operates, the way in which ideology operates, and uh, in a sense the individual is the site of that resistance, are uh, things that I'm I'm more excited about and more uh, in, uh, compelled by uh, than those which uh, simply accept these patterns and forms. And I think in a certain way that is a continuum with the tradition of making it newer, I would say, in the sense that in order for to be contemporary, one has to be, uh, everything has changed true, all these words are the same. There's always the the, but everything is different about this moment for us. And I think that was the, a lot of the beauty of uh, Susan. Well, the youth, the youth, the expectations in language. I mean, I have a quote which is from Piambino's essay in the poem that I read, which is all language is conditioned by expectation. I think is is uh, is what it was, and I think it. Uh, you know, I mean, the, it, the, that question both would. T it, there's a long reply to that, which is inappropriate, and there's the short reply, but the, the short that is we're saturated in a language environment, and that the kinds, the specific and specifically different for each individual, for each year, for each 
period, the particular language environment that we're saturated in sets up different kinds of expectations. They can't be in any easy way identified. That's what we're trying to figure out, explore, make apparent, and in a way make, make poetry of, to uh, turn those expectations back on themselves so that you can, so that they don't uh, uh, totally uh, paralyze you or totally put you into an automatic pilot, but that you can begin to hear them coming and, and, and resist them to some degree and make them work with you to some degree. So it's, it's that pattern of being able to hear expectations and being able to use them as opposed to being controlled by them that's part of the process of writing. Whether you it's like, like it or no, not. There's no I mean, Actually, uh, there's, there's no reward to get rejected by Newman. I was sort of trying to move the discussion away from this question of individuality, which a lot of us who uh, may have, um, well, probably all of us writers who have um, personalities to cope with are very anxious to find out about. <laughs> Identify useful commonality, don't we? Probably the most um, the most widely printed words in the English language are close cover before striking. I don't know who wrote them. I don't, I don't know who wrote them. I don't know what you wrote them. But um, there's a, there's a um, one, I think one thing we can say is there is a collective commonality that has. But as useful to literature and has not itself ever been identified as literature. Uh, Charles Reznikoff, for example, with his enormous interest in law reports, uh, somewhat, sty somewhat stylized and formulized accounts of what people said in courtrooms under examination, he discovered that these were, this was the basis for a kind of poetry but he could simply transcribe them sometimes and edit them lightly. Now that, that, is, um, that is material that has the advantage of not having been cursed, put, put under the curse of being literature. I think there must be a lot more of it. Well, I, and I think uh, that, that a number of people now are, I mean, that's a wonderful, the testimony uh, is a marvelous work by Reznikoff for its purity of its relation to materials, but I think certainly the understanding of a variety of materials that are available that don't necessarily seem to be literary <laughs> is part of this answer to, uh, to your question about the essay versus the other. I, mean, I always felt a, a, sort of uh, not interested in the idea of the verse tradition, even the avant-garde American poetry tradition as being these group of names of people writing poetry in the 20th century, whereas it seemed to me the influences on what I wanted to do 
were widely disparate and included a number of different kinds of, just in terms of writing, technical manuals, uh, 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 advertising, um, and uh, stand-up comedy, many kinds of, of forms of writing uh, that would not be clinical, medical writing, that would not normally be considered literary. And in fact, I'm generally attracted to vocabularies which are not uh, easily understood as being aestheticizable or made into kind of beautiful lyric music. And uh, it seems to me that gives you something to do and to work with and to, 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 to move out in terms of those materials. I, I, I'd like to, I think we have to end now. Uh, I'd like to thank the audience for coming here. I'd like to thank Charles Bernstein, Susan Howe, Hugh Kenner for a very lucid and coherent evening. Thank you. Not that he used it as a, as a product.